Hey, are you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble falling asleep? Well, you're in the right place. Because Sleep With Me Podcast is proud to present Game of Drones. The Game of Thrones podcast that's here to help you fall asleep. We do it with an episode discussion. Tonight we're going to be covering The Children. Season 4, Episode 10. All you need to do is get in bed, turn off the lights and press play. We'll do the rest. Podcast is going to create a safe place where you can set aside any racing thoughts or... Troubled thoughts, worried thoughts, thoughty thoughts, thinking thoughts, thoughts of duality, morality, spirituality, habituality, stuff, any of that kind of brainy stuff. You're going to be able to put that aside. You're just going to listen to my voice. And I'm going to drone on and on about the children, the episode, stuff that interests me. It's going to distract you from that stuff. But I'm going to kind of go on. Off on tangents and by roads and, and you know, like when the Hound and Brienne were fighting, there was all these different side canyons. I'll probably be lost in one of those. And you'll be asleep or drifting off into dreamland. Now, if this is your first time here, welcome, first off. This might sound crazy. But, yeah, this is a podcast to help you fall asleep. Specifically to kind of lull you to sleep, bore you to sleep, ease you to sleep, distract you to sleep, whatever, however you want to term it. That's it. I'm not going to, I'm not selling any meditation tapes or hypnosis tapes or anything like that. I'm just a person that happens to be good at talking in a way that progressively gets, well, I I like to call it a little trans boredom which is meaningless, but uh, that's what I do here. And if it helps you fall asleep, that's what you're supposed to do, put it on. Hopefully if it helps you fall asleep, it does great. Come on back. We have Game of Drones on Sundays. Trending Tuesdays on Tuesdays. That's another bedtime story. And on Thursdays, we have Superdoll. You can find all our episodes on our website, www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Game of Drones are at slash Game of Drones. We're on iTunes. If you only want Game of Thrones content, Game of Thrones has its own feed. Otherwise, just search for Sleep With Me. You can subscribe in iTunes or whatever other pod device you use. If you need to get a hold of me, it's feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. You can email me feedback, thoughts, concerns, feelings, insights. I'm on Twitter, at Dearest Scooter. Do the same there. I post uh, sleep-related news articles there. You can get a hold of us on Facebook. Um, bad news, I, uh, broke the USB drive with all the bloopers, so I'll just keep making more mistakes, and I'm going to get some bloopers up on Facebook, and that's it, uh, I think that's it, let's get, let's keep this show moving, okay? Alright, before we get to the drone stuff, you might notice that, uh, I don't have my A-game, shocking, it's been about two weeks, I think, since I recorded a podcast, and we got a ton of ton of housekeeping to get to, but I know you guys are patient. And we're going to get to it over the next couple episodes. But I've been gone for two weeks, and you might, might not have noticed because I tried to make sure there's podcasts there for you. But I got a little housekeeping of my own house to, to address of why I was gone. I was gone because my brother Dan, or Daniel, if you want to use his full name, got married. 
and he's a listener to a lovely, his lovely bride, Meredith. And I want to, you know, this is a, this is all the housekeeping we're going to do this episode. I want to take a second and say hi to them. And I had a lovely time at their wedding, a lovely time before their wedding, spending time with my family. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't like to be, a, I'm not a person that has feelings normally. I try to avoid feelings. You know, I try to be here for you. I try to be a rock of, uh, like an ice-cold rock in a sea. Hard, solid, alone. You know, like almost like a lighthouse of to help you sleep. But every once in a while, you know, the rock's got to, actually the rock doesn't, well, I guess I'm trying to uh, delay. But I just want to admit, take a second and say, Dan and Meredith, if you're listening, congratulations again. Now, the listeners and my brother Dan, uh, I'm not very good at one-on-one conversations, so I'm going to do this over the podcast, much less, much less, uh, much easier for me to do. But, uh, you know, I, and I, uh, I'm always a great, uh, Dan's my younger brother. I'm not, I wasn't always the best big brother. I had, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the greatest guy in the world. I, I don't feel like I measured up as a big brother back when I was a kid because I didn't know what I was doing. And Dan, he was this really smart kid. He's a, he's a little bit younger than me, maybe a six, seven years younger. And I remember as a little kid, my brother Dan, he was really bright, and he was he was really curious, and he was always uh, getting himself into a little, a little bit of trouble. Even as a even as a grammar school, you're not you're not any you know grammar school level trouble. But I remember I was always worried about him, and I moved away. And I said, this kid's one of these kids that's too bright for his own good. And I, I would worry about him. I'd be like, man, is there, and I, you know, I always thought I was a crappy brother. Now maybe it turns out I'm not, I'm not as bad. I'm probably harder on myself than I need to be. But I thought maybe I could do more. But I moved away. I didn't really know how to be, I didn't have an older brother. I never, I don't know. I'm still learning. But I was always worried. Like I said, I was like, oh man, I hope everything turns out for Dan. Now, Dan, things have turned out for him now. He's got his struggles. He's got his own personal things. I'm sure he goes through. He gets up every morning. But this he's a really bright guy. Brilliant guy. And I just want to say how much proud I am of him. And that's the one thing at the wedding that hit me hardest is that I'm really proud of him. And I'm also proud that, you know, I don't have to worry about him anymore because he found this wonderful woman, Meredith, who is bright, intelligent, charming beautiful, and his equal. And uh, they seem to love each other deeply. And I'm just excited to have this new sister in my life or sister-in-law or uh, whatever you want to call it. So that's it. I don't know. I'm, this, I'm droning on here. You might be, if you're new, you might be a winner getting into the Game of Thrones stuff. You know, what are you, heartless bastard? I'm trying to talk personal stuff here. <laughs> hey, hound. So calm it down. Uh, so that's it. I, that's my housekeeping for tonight. Uh, it's a little bit rambling, a little bit uh, personal, and, you know, whatever. It's, it needed to be done, and I probably could have done it better. But I just want Dan and Meredith to know I love you. From the bottom of my heart, somewhere there's a place where love exists, and I'm trying to foster that love, and I have it for both of you. And after another 20 years of thawing out, I may be able to say it to your faces. 
So that's it. Uh, let's get on to the show. All right, so we're going to talk about children, the children, season four, episode 10. We're going to cover uh, the ep- run through the episode real quick. At some point, we're going to talk about Magnum Mighty. I don't know if it's going to be at the beginning or the end. We're going to talk about the Calvary. 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 We're going to talk about the Cavalry. 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 We're going to talk about the Cavalry. Cavalry. Cavalry, I think is the pronunciation. It's not Calvary. Which is what I want to say, but it's cavalry. I think cavalry, cavalry. So we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about kneeling, bowing, curtsying. What's up with that? I'm gonna cover a little bit of a sensitive subject of end of life planning. We're gonna talk talk about lizards a little bit, lizard lizard tricks, and we're gonna get a little Ray Harryhausen for you. So that's what we're gonna talk about. I'm so glad you're here. Now, you might be wondering, this is the end of season four. Is Game of Drones going away? No, it's not, unless you tell me, a massive amount of you tell me to make it go away. Even then, I don't know if I can. So we're going to be here every week with Game of Drones. This is going to get me through to the next season. Um, Next week, I don't know what's going to be coming up. It'll either be season one, episode one, or some interim thing. Uh, about the love boat, but I don't know if I've been able. I'll have a. I don't know if I'll be able to do that justice yet. But we'll we'll be we'll be back next Sunday for sure. All right. So let's talk. Child, let's talk about the children, shall we? <laughs> All right. So we're at the children. We open up with um, John Snow walking, crows on giants. I like that. Have Mance uh, doing a little Alan Rickman. I felt like channeling Alan Rickman. But he's like, you know, I'd never use poison on you. And we have this nice inter- interplay about Mag the Mighty, the Giant King, and Ren the Farmer. Or Ren, he, he grew up on a farm, or he was from a farm. Love that. And then they drink to him, both. Now, I don't want to get on, I don't want to get all political, but it seems like Mance is just like, hey, man, we just want to get behind your wall. And from their perspective, um, I know Jon Snow, he, he's... Uh, He's got some empathy, some compassion, and you do have your vows and all that. But I think these these others are pretty bad, badass people, and that they're that desperate to get behind the wall. They're pretty scared, okay. And uh, I really like Mance. Cavalry come, ca- cavalry, cavalry comes. Get a little Onion Knight, a little Stannis, and uh, Onion Knight throwing around some attitude. Can't can't beat uh, Sir Davos. Get a little Davos snow eye contact. Like, hey, you guys can be hanging out with Scooter later. You know, your Scooter's butt pretend best friend too, huh? So, you know, they're way, you know, weighing each other out or whatever. Now, no offense, John Snow. You know, Davos ranks you, you know, a little higher than you. I like him a little bit better. But that's, that's nothing against you. It's just, you know, Davos is the best. He's on your night. Get a little stuff about kneeling. That's why you know we don't kneel. And that gets uh, gets into a little. Uh, what do you say? W W N D, right? Or W W N S D? What would Ned Stark do? And uh, we miss Ned Stark. We miss Sean Bean. Spoiler alert! Post spoiler alert! If you listen to this and you haven't seen first season, but 
Somebody's going to spoil that for you. I might as well have done it. And maybe you're asleep already. So I really like this uh, Battle of the Meisters. 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 Meisters, right? May. A-E sounds May. You got the Manticore Ventum. And they're arguing over that mountain. And and Cersei. Cersei, yeah. I was trying to think of it today on the train. Like, it's like she's always playing this these board games, but in real life, I mean, the whole, all four seasons, she drives a lot of the action, I feel like, from in, in, uh, but she's like four steps ahead, you know, the action doesn't play out. I mean, this action with reviving, what, why, why she, she wants the mountain, revi- she's like willing to take to whatever it takes to get the mountain back on his feet to protect her. And he's going to be like her B option. This episode is kind of her playing out her A option to get her way of how she wants things set up to protect her, her son. And I was like, what game is it that she's playing, though? Because I was like, it does remind me of a game. I'm like, it's not quite chess. Because, uh, I mean, I guess chess, you can't, you do have more than one thing going on. But it's like, she's almost like, I was like, oh, is it like Risk? And then I kind of got distracted because I'm like, uh, what's the name of that peninsula? Kind of between uh, Alaska and Russia, like the Kamakracher, Kamakracher, whatever. I used to love, if you ever play Risk against me, and I don't play um, uh, Risk on a board because I'm not good at uh, mathematics or and reading instructions. And, uh, you know, they've had it even since like crappy DOS computers you could play Risk on a computer would do all the math for you but that was what I would always go for I liked controlling the Kramakratch or whatever Kramakratcha whatever it's called and to the people of that land I'm sorry I am a fool but you you had I loved controlling your territory in Risk I felt like it uh, and then I would like to control somewhere else and I was like so then I'm like Cersei Mir that's how that's why we're alike except she probably can pronounce things and she'd probably be me at risk. Um, probably she would like, uh, you know, touch her foot to my shin and I would be distracted. And then she would stab me in the throat or have Tom and I mean, she'd probably have Sir Pounce kill me somehow. Like she put cat food, wipe it on my throat and then Sir Pounce might. That's enough. So what am I saying? I don't know. Let's keep moving. I love it when Circe and Tywin argue and this was a really powerful exchange between the two of them you know i know there's a lot of powerful women that listen to this podcast strong powerful women and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later but when in battles with fathers that live in um the world as they wish it would be then instead of as it was i'd love to hear from you how you felt about that because i really felt like I don't know. It's just beautiful. I mean, beautifully in a devastating, beautiful, beautiful way, watching her punish her father for living in this delusion and watching the anger and the disbelief unfold. And then finally, uh, it wasn't like she was expressing her love, but she was like, like almost like grabbed him by his shoulders and made him look in the mirror to, you know, to see the truth, uh, for what it is and not for what he thinks it should be or what he wants it to be. And Tywin's just, uh, I mean, 
you know, he hasn't done the best job on his kids, so what what a jerk. And she sums it up with, your legacy is a lie. And then we have a little Jamie and Cersei. No, no, it was beautiful as that scene was. Can't say I trust Cersei. And can't say she might, where she's at with Jamie. I mean, she can't. Obviously, she's not going to put, He's. I don't think he's her Kamarkatra Peninsula anymore. Uh, that she's putting all her, um, you know, numbers into that peninsula to make sure it's locked down. Like he might be her, um, the thing where you could, whatever, Brazil or whatever, that you can control the one way in from Africa and South America or maybe Mexico or you can control, you know, something like that, but he's not. So... Yeah, it's interesting to see that scene play out, but also triggers a question. Man, where's where's this thing going, and where is where is she pushing things? Both this episode and into the next season. Also, a nice detail is that um, when they get get when they're getting busy on the table, Jamie pushes that book away the the Night's Watch history of the Night's Watch or whatever a Night's Watch no Kingsguard the history of the Kingsguard which he was so concerned about earlier in the season, pushes it away because uh, he's overwhelmed with some sort of passion for his sister. And we have the Khaleesi going from the breaker of chains to the putter of chains. Another nice touch. Very heartbreaking watching her walk away from those two dragons and leave them submerged in the uh, catacombs. Also interesting that the one... Dragon that got away, his name is Drogon, I think. And I don't know if that was uh, named after Khal Drogo or it's just Dragon with an O. I'm not sure, but I liked it. The other two dragons, uh, like Fifi and Lulu and Drogon. T- terrible joke, but I like saying those are two of my favorite joke names, Fifi and Lulu. So Night's Watch and their wa- now their watch is ended. Start burning flesh. Who who shows up at the first smell of burning flesh but the red woman? She locks eyes with that Jon Snow. But she must love the smell of burning burning bodies. I mean, that's crazy. But she's always there. And we have a nice joke about between Torm and Jon Snow. It's like all she talked about was trying to kill you. It's confirmation that she loves him. Of course. And then we got Team Bran out there on the plains of... Uh, Pre-Treeville, where the uh, dead go to rise. Ray Harryhausen, that's why we're going to be talking about it, because I loved, like, at one point, Hordor has, like, a double skeleton backpack going. But great, beautiful, beautiful scene. Beautiful effects, action, magic. A kid from uh, Beyond the Thunderdome shows up and starts shooting, uh, you know, ma- magic missiles, I think. So that was cool, and uh, made me. Th- I didn't. I did not do any investigation in Beyond the Thunderdome, but the uh, if you've watched Beyond the Thunderdome, you know there's the kids that praise the airplane pilot or whatever. They kind of looked like that. Or maybe yeah, I think it was that one. Maybe it was the first, second one. I, I don't know. There's a new Road Warrior movie coming out with Tom Hardy. I'm looking forward to that. It's also a very true detective. Those of you guys that caught Drew Detective, True Detective in the season, the finale of that season. Uh, and when you get into that tree tree town, 
where the three-eyed raven guy is at. Very true detective, like the end of that. I liked that. And then finally, we get uh, the big battle between Brienne and the Hound. And Arya gets across the name of her list. Podrick gets to run around like a buffoon, as always, and yelled at by Brienne more than once. He lost the horses. And then uh, he loses Arya. And great battle. We miss you, Hound. Uh, I don't know what to, I mean, I don't even really want to get into it too much because I'm going to miss miss greatly. Uh, hopefully, uh, Arya's going to team up with someone else. She's made, she really is uh, made a good partner to a lot of great characters. And we're sorry to see you go, Rory. It's been a pleasure. Charles Dance was the next one. I mean, bodies were dropping this episode. Uh, but Charles Dance, we... Not as sorry to see you go. I mean, I am sorry to see Charles Dance go. But Tywin, you know, the Hound's a bad man, very bad man, so he had it coming. But in more of a, he, he, he uh, the Hound dealt mostly uh, physical violence. Where Tywin Lannister would dealt physical and emotional violence, but stung, stings more, you know, when you're investing in these characters. Uh, and this guy's doing this emotional damage to people. That, uh, you know, he's just a, so, you know, Charles Dance, we said goodbye to him. And heartbreaking moment with, it was just heartbreaking. I don't, I don't, I can't, you guys saw the episode. It was tough. It was tough stuff. And then we had two boat, but what better way to recover from the loss of the hound? Tyrion committing some dark stuff. Then a couple boat rides with, uh, just sit right back near here, tail. Of two boats on their way to the free cities. Arya and one. Valar Mogulis. And then the guy says, Walk with Mamwa. Something like that. Uh, and the guy says, uh, What does he say? Iris Mogulis. I don't know. Something. And then we got uh, the old spider. And his crate full of Tyrion. They're off on a little boat ride too. Very, very, very uh, cute stuff, I would say. Uh, I guess I'm re-looking at my notes and... See all these great lines the hound had. Just rewatch the episode, okay? Because I'm too, uh, too, too uh, hounded out with uh, emotion to uh, get into it. So yeah, that's uh, about it. Let's uh, let's move on to some really boring stuff. I, I, uh, how's that sound? Shall we? All right. So we had the big scene with Jon Snow and Mance, and then Stannis shows up, and uh, he shows up with a bunch of horses. Cavalry, right? Caval, cav, cavalry, cavil, cav, cavalry, which I always thought was the same as Calvary. It's not. First time learned something today already. Cavalry is a horse, you know, soldiers on horses. And they showed up, they made quick work of Mance's army. And I was like, you know, when the people show up with horses, like, uh, was it Lord of the Rings 2? Uh, the ring that, uh, came, what was it, Lord of the Rings? Two Towers. I want to say something funny. I think the Two Towers. Yeah, Return of the Kings 3. Two Towers. Horses show up and save the day in that one. And I'm like, man, how, how, what's up with these horses, you know, ca- cavalry? They're always showing up and they make a difference. They change the, uh, the tide of battle. 
And I understand it. You know, you're on a horse. It's moving. It's got hooves. You got to, you know, it's breathing. But, like, how much of a difference does it make in battle? Like, I don't really actually, you know, I didn't, I didn't really understand the total importance. I want to dig into it, right? So let's let's do that. Cavalry from the French Cavieri. Uh, or horsemen, or soldiers or warriors who fought mounted on horseback. It's from Wikipedia. Cavalry were historically the most mobile of combat arms. The designation of cavalry was not given to any military force that used other animals, that might have used other animals such as camels or mules. Infantry who were mounted on horseback but dismounted to fight on foot were dragoons, mounted infantry, so they weren't cavalry. And then I, I would guess that elephants, or in this case, uh, some sort of, uh, what do you call those things, mammoths, woolly mammoths, those are more beasts of burden, I'm guessing, than cavalry. 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 I'm having trouble with that word. I'm not even trying to be funny. <laughs> um, okay, so then I was like, man, but what, what, where's the answer to my question? How much of a difference and why do they make a difference? Turns out over at Stack Exchange, where's place where people answer questions this guy uh dvk that's all i have did, wrote an excellent answer that i'll link to in the show notes to the question how well can cavalry cavalry fight infantry uh what oh what advantage does being mounted carry against infantry because in this case mance's troops were infantry they're on the ground and then Stanish's troops were on horseback. So here's some advantages according to DVW or whatever at Stack Exchange. They hold a strategic advantage, marching speed. They can maneuver forces rapidly. They were moving rapidly there. Logistics. Horse-mounted warrior has a greater carrying capacity, reducing the requirement for logistics train. Horses can be used for environmental protection if you're in somewhere cold. Barry against sand, snowstorm, warmth, as we know against, just like in the Empire Strikes Back. Horses can also be used as food if horse comes to worse. Next up, higher position of the fighter allows you to thrust down, thrust down. Stronger hit, steadier position, since you can lean forward during the hit. Your opponent needs to raise their weapon and shield. Higher to parry, tires their arms. Next, carrying capacity of the mountain combat. You carry a heavier weapon. This adds to the next advantage, mass. It's an advantage on its own since a heavier weapon can be made sturdier or better. Allows you to carry a longer weapon, increasing your range. Allows you to carry heavier, stronger armor. I should carry more weapons and better ones. Uh, lance, sword, bows, arrows, whatnot. Or more arrows. Greater mass of the attacker because you have the horse plus the rider plus the armor plus the weapons, which increases your momentum and kinetic energy. General psychological advantage. People are scared when massive things gallop at you. Speed, which allows you to put more kinetic energy into your weapon attack along with the extra bonus from the mentioned extra mass. 
This applies to handheld weapons and especially ranged weapons, i.e. javelins. Since those, and I don't understand any of this next stuff, but since those don't have the drawback of Newton's third law of motion from your own strike, nor the added risk of hitting opponent's pike sword harder. You can use a horse as a weapon. Galloping horses can trample you, hoof you, or just being hit by a horse is a bad thing. You can use the horse to physically break the lines of the opponent due to momentum. Extra tactical movement maneuverability. Attack from any direction you choose. Stannis did that from both sides. Before entry formation, infantry formation can reform or form at all. Flank and rear attacks. Get quickly within the range of ranged weapons. Oh, yeah, and get out of the way. Um, that's it. So that's uh, interesting to learn more about this cavalry. I think, I don't know if they're bravosi and uh, pay enough attention, I guess. But, uh, yeah, so it's cavalry. All right, the next thing we're going to cover is bowing, kneeling, and maybe curtsying. Because uh, Mance, good old Mance, I don't want, I want to call him Mance Reindeer or Mance Radar. But that might be a character from StarCraft. Or maybe it is, uh, maybe it's just Mance. Is it Mance Rain? I don't know. But so he's like, we don't bow or we don't kneel or whatever. And I like, you know... Onion Knight was not into that. But, you know, it was like, oh, bowing, kneeling. It's like something you do for kings or whatever. I just, you know, I wanted to dig a little deeper than just, uh, you know, I like my ignorance based in a, a misleading Wikipedia article as opposed to just my first impressions. Well, sometimes I just go with my first impressions as facts. But so I dug in. Let's take a look here. All right. So uh, social, ne- social, socially kneeling. Similar to bowing, similarly to bowing, this is from Wikipedia, it's associated with reverence, submission, and obsolescence, which I made a note to look up the definition of that, which I did not. Put that in the show notes, hopefully. Particularly if one kneels before a person who is standing or sitting, the kneeling position renders a person defenseless and unable to be unable to flee. So it's both symbolic and in some sense, you know, they could cut Mance's head off. For this reason, in some religions, particularly Christians and Muslims, kneeling is used as a position for prayer, as a permission, position of submission to God. Let's see what else we got. Bowing, also called stooping, is the act of lowering the torso and head as a social gesture, gesture, in direction to another person or symbol. Is most Now, this is Wikipedia, so some of this stuff is... Uh, going to be, it'll have different degrees of probably ignorance, uh, cultural offensiveness, and probably a little bit of racism and bigotry and prejudice mixed in. But, you know, with footnotes. And I love Wikipedia, not for that reason, but just fact. So it is most prominent, this doesn't have a footnote, so just a note, it's most prominent in Asian cultures. It is also typical of the nobility and aristocracy in many countries and distinctively in Europe. Oh, God. I wish uh, Grammar Girl would not listen to this podcast, but someone like Grammar Girl? Let's break down the sentence real quick. Like, I, I'm horrible at the English language. 
but this sentence just sticks out to me as a train wreck. It is most prominent in Asian cultures, but is also typical of nobility and aristocracy in many countries and distinctively in Europe. Wow, that, uh, I don't know if that's like a double dip thong or what, but that has, it's a, can't be, everything can't be true in that sentence. It's most prominent in Asian cultures, most prominent, but hold on, it's typical <laughs> of nobility and aristocracy. So most prominent, but it's also typical, and then it's also distinctive in Europe, distinctively European. Oh, so that's nonsense. I didn't mean that this isn't a Wikipedia bashing, because obviously I'm leaning heavily on Wikipedia. Just a, like, it's like, you know, mentally ill, you know, close family member or podcaster you listen to to fall asleep. There's quirks that you love about Wikipedia, and this is one of them. Sometimes, so where were we? Sometimes the gesture may be limited to lowering the head, such as in Indonesia. And in many cultures, several degrees of the lowness of the bow are distinguished and regarded as appropriate for different circumstances, especially prominent in China, Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, where it may be executed standing or kneeling. Some bows are performed equally by two or more people, while others are unequal. The person bowed to either does not bow in return or performs a less bow, a less low bow. I thought it said bow bow. A less bow bow. A nod of the head. My dog's coming over. She's checking in on this bowing stuff. She's like, oh, what's that? I got to listen in closer. A nod of the head may be regarded as a minimal form of bow, forms of kneeling, genuflection, or prostration, which involve the hands or the whole body touching. Touching the ground, the next levels of the gesture. Now, what bowing makes me think of in this context is an author, James Clavell. Now, uh, I read, uh, he, he wrote the books, uh, that I can think of, uh, Taipan and Shogun. Both like, um, I think they got made into miniseries. Now, I'm not a literature expert, but I read the books. I didn't see the miniseries. Now, I don't know if these were the novelizations of the miniseries. Or the books, uh, you know, got made into the miniseries. But I really enjoyed these books as a teen, uh, somewhere between 14 and whatever age I am now. Uh, because they had samurais and sword play. But also a fictionalization of these uh, ancient, some of these ancient Asian cultures. I think one takes place in Japan, feudal Japan, and the other one takes place in Hong Kong. Um, check them out if you have any interest in that kind of stuff. Like, I'm not, I'll put it in the show notes, but I like those books. That's what I'm saying. They got love, sword play, sex, more sword play. They got, um, you know, Kota Bushido, I think, and some, uh, seppuku. So, you know, what can, I think one, one character is a green eyed devil, they call him. We could, you know, who could possibly go wrong? So James Clavell. Okay, um, in European back to the back to the Wikipedia stuff. European cultures, aside from bows, done by performers on stage, such as at the curtain call, bowing is traditionally an exclusive male practice. Oh, here's where it gets really offensive. And females instead perform a related gesture called a curtsy or curt curt 
curtsy or curtsy, I think. The depth of the bow related to the difference in the rank of the degree of respect or gratitude in early modern European countries' quarterly circles. Males were expected to bow and scrape. Don't know what that means. Oh, scraping. Oh, this is like fancy, fancy stuff. Scraping refers to the drawing back of the right leg as one bows. And the right foot scrapes on the floor to the earth. Typically, while executing such a bow, the man's right hand is pressed horizontally across the abdomen. So this is some, you know, some stuff here. What else we got? Uh, bowing. Bows are traditional in East Asia. We've covered that. However, bowing is not reserved just for greetings. It's a gesture of respect. Different bows are for apologies or gratitude or different emotions. Be nice to have a footnote there. Basic bows originate at the waist, perform at the back straight, and the hands at the side. For men are clasped in front for women with the eyes down. Generally, the longer and deeper the bow, the stronger the emotion. This one, this is silly. I remember reading this. Uh, again, bows can be divided into three main types. Informal, formal, and very formal. <laughs> very formal. Informal bows are a 15-degree angle, more formal, 30. Very formal bows are deeper, so more than 30 degrees. Extreme cases, a kneeling bow is performed. That's a very, very formal bow, I guess, which may be so deep the forehead touches the floor. There's extremely complex etiquette surrounding bowing. Length and depth of bow and the appropriate response. Bows of apology tend to be deeper and last longer. They occur with the free... Imagine, I'd be bowing a lot if I lived in a bowing culture. Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think I owe him a bow all the way to the floor. Bows of uh, apology or frequency performed at press conferences by high-ranking members of the company that has done a misdeed such as producing faulty parts. Someone snuck this in here. I mean, it's probably true, but that results in a death. It's too bad. Uh, bows are commonly used in greetings. Um, let's get curtsies. A curtsy, also spelled different ways, is a traditional gesture of a greeting in which a girl or woman bends her knees while bowing her head is a equivalent of a male bowing. Miss Manners categorizes its knee bend as deriving from the traditional gesture of an inferior to a superior. Another word I should have looked up, the word curtsy is a phonological change from courtesy, known in linguistics as a S-Y-N-C-O-P-E. something. According to Desmond Morris, the motions involving the curtsy and the bow were similar until the 17th century, and the gender differentiation and the actions were developed afterwards. Traditionally, women and girls curtsy for those senior social rank, just as men and boys bow. Today's practice has become less common and less uh, many traditional European cultures, it is traditional for women to curtsy in front of royalty. It may be referred to as a court curtsy, often deep and elaborate further. Some female domestic workers curtsy for their employers. 
Their employers are called assholes. Female, I mean, you gotta be kidding me. People still, oof. Uh, female dancers often curtsy at the end of performances. At the end of ballet class, students will curtsy or bow to the teacher and the pianist to show gratitude. According to Victorian dance etiquette, a woman curtsies before the beginning of a dance. And I just wonder about this curtsy stuff. Is it, uh, did somebody come up with it because so, dudes are pervs and they look up women's dresses? Or is it some, like, complicated, subservient thing? Uh, it's definitely dude, male-related. And I apologize for all of us for being, because we probably would be looking. I don't know. I can't, I can't make excuses for the men. Because I'm, I'm guilty. And I guess I can apologize. But that's all I can do. And then close. This is a classic craziness. The Texas dip is an extreme curtsy performed by a Texan debutante. When formally introduced at the International Debutante Ball at the Waldorf Astoria. Only Texans, I guess, so. The young woman slowly lowers her forehead to the floor by crossing her ankles then bending her knees and sinking. The escort's hand is held during the dip. When the debutante's head nears the floor, she turns her head sideways, averting the risk of soiling her dress with lipstick. I gotta look that up on the internet. Oh, boy. I'll put that in a YouTube of the Texas dip in there. If you've done a Texas dip, uh, let me know. All right, let's move on. All right, next we're going to talk about, like, end-of-life planning because in the we have the scene with Cersei and the Meisters, the Meisters, the non-Meister and the former Meister or whatever, or Meisters, I think. They're planning, making plans for the mountains uh, with continued care, I'd say. Um, he doesn't have a DNR order, do not resuscitate. And it looks like they're going to be forming some sort of transfusion or something. It got me thinking, like, well, the mountain... I don't know if in Westeros they really have a use for uh, end-of-life planning. And it made me curious about two things. I don't know that much about end-of-life planning, so I did dug into that. But also, uh, what about end-of-life planning if you're not going to be human anymore? Like, I'm not sure what this guy's up to with the mountain. He says he's going to be strong, but he's not going to be the same. Is he going to be some sort of zombified mountain? Or like a Frankensteinian mountain? And then, like, if you had a end-of-life plan, would that be like, okay, you know, like Khal Drogo, he could have used one maybe. It's like, okay, don't resuscitate me, but if you can bring me back to life, like that would be a choice you make because it would be like, I wouldn't want to come back as a zombie or a Frankensteinian or in a jar. But some people, you know, some people do. I mean, like they say Ted Williams and uh, Walt Disney, those are rumored people that are cryogenically frozen. So I don't know that kind of stuff. So let's just read some boring stuff instead of me talking about stuff that may or may not be controversial or lunatic, you know. You know, you guys don't care about me being a zombie and saying, wait a second, I signed this DNR. I'd be like, I signed DNR. I was not supposed to be a zombie. I mean, it could be coming walking dead. And then someone actually came up with a term with it on the Internet uh, about zombies. We'll have to put it in the show notes because I can't find it. All right, so this is from the uh, National Institute of Health. Planning for end-of-life care decisions. Because of advances in medicine, each of us with our family and friends may have faced decisions about the dying process. 
as hard as this might be, and put yourself in the mountain's shoes. I mean, Gordon the Howl in the mountain's, I mean, are the mountain's dad's shoes. Because, I mean, I'm going to get to, believe me, my, I'm going to wreak some vengeance on the mountain's dad, but not at this time. So if he's like, he definitely preferred the mountain over the hound for some strange reason. So think about him. He, he loves the mountain. Cersei seems to have some sort of stake in the mountain. So what would they feel? As hard as it might be to face the idea of your death, mountain, you may take the time to consider how your values relate to your idea of a good death. There's several ways to make sure others know the kind of care you want when you're dying. You can talk about it. That's the simplest and easiest way is to talk about it before you get ill. And this is a serious subject, you know, when uh, you should be asleep anyway. And I've been delivering the dullest way possible, but something to think about your subconscious. Don't be troubled by it. Uh, things we fear discussing sometimes, you know, hold us back from finding the solution. Um, so, yeah, you can talk about it uh, before you get sick with your family. I lost my spot, but, you know, bring it up a small family gathering. Find out other people's opinions so you can make the decision ahead of time and make it easier on your family so they don't have to worry about it because they're going to be worried about you, just like uh, Mr. Clegane. You may also have some small comfort knowing your family can choose what you want. On the other hand, if your parents are aging and you're concerned about them, you might introduce the subject. Explain to them that you're having this conversation will help you care for them and do what they want. Of course, your parents always would want to worry about what they want. Mom, Dad, I love you, but we're all worried about what we want. We're not perfect. We're, you know, we're, we're burdened by ego. Not not right or wrong, just a fact. You might start by asking about what you think their values are. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do not start telling your parents what their values are. Sorry, National Institute of Health. You're going to have some domestic disturbances here. Start telling your parents what they value. Let them tell you. Um, it says, I think, to try some tricky stuff like um, introduce a straw man argument type thing. What if Uncle Walt had a stroke and passed away? Uh, you seemed upset that his kids put him on a respirator. I've always wondered why Grandma didn't pass away at home. Do you know? Encourage your parents to share the type of care they would choose to have at the end of their life. Rather than what they don't want. Oh, that's a good idea. Tell, tell me what you want, not what you don't want. There is no right or wrong plan. Only what they would like. Written advanced directives and other documents. Now this is, a, as an aside, you might be wondering everything that happened with... Uh, one one question you might have as a listener, if you, if you listen to the show, is like Oberyn Martell Dorn. How did uh, I know... Like, how, how did that work out that be, he became a god? If you guys don't listen to the whole show to the end, he's a, he's become the jester god of uh, Westeros, you know, new or old, uh, or new, new, whatever. We're not going to debate that, but me and him had a, a written directive called the Jester Directive. It was a secret thing that, now, I don't want you calling up... Uh, Martin or Weiss or Benioff, and I am telling them this, but because I'm messing around their universe with my Bruce Bolton fantasy fiction time machine, but I only mess around it after someone passes away. But I had, um, you know, broke through the metaverse, got to him. I said, listen, Oberyn, 
You don't know me. I'm not dressed in t typical Westerosi costume. You know, all that stuff. Calm down. I know you're a smart guy. I know you like everything. And I want to continue your pleasure. I want to offer you a chance in case something unseemly happens to you. I want to know what, you know, I want you to be able to continue this lifestyle. Maybe even take it to the next level. And, I, you know, I want to be your best friend, maybe. So I, I came up with this idea for you to become a god. And I figured they don't have a jester, trickster type god. Or if they do, I'm ignorant of it because I tend to be ignorant. And I think even if they did, you could probably take them out. So I was thinking maybe you would be the jester god. And I have these illegal forms I prepared with the uh, with your blood when you were sleeping and your hair. But um, don't worry about that. Don't get mad. But, uh, you know, what do you think? And he signed it. He thought it was hilarious. And uh, whatever he else, but we won't, we won't get into it. But so that's an example of now he, he did not expect to pass away at a young age of whatever, however old he is. But now he's got what he wants. He's a jester god. He has, a, I think, he, I, I don't want to get into faith and Westeros and uh, stuff. But so that's, a, that's why you, this is an example of why you would come up with these directives and talk to you. Talk to you. Think about what you want. Talk to your parents about it. I have another article. I'm, I don't, I don't want to go too deep into this. But it was written before Casey Kasem passed away. And that was quite a saga. I don't even know all the details, but it was incredibly painful, um, even as an outsider, to see and confusing for probably everyone involved. And it seemed like there was a lot of strong emotions, especially between his daughter and his wife. But he actually did have uh, some sort of directive in play that he had granted to his daughter. And that did give her more legal rights uh, that she had to go to when she was getting the runaround by this wife who kind of, at least the way it was portrayed in the media, it, was, it seemed like a lunatic. And she was throwing meat and all that. Now, this is just uh, hearsay, but uh, she, the daughter did have some rights to dictate what would happen to her father. Unfortunately, I don't know. That got all mixed up in, in emotions as things happen to do. So that's why I guess they're recommending do it ahead of time. You know, deal with your fear of loss and death. You know, take a breath. And, uh, you know, think like, just like, I, 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 you know, I'm not just telling you this. I'm doing it. I sat down. I don't want to lose my potential best friend, Oberyn. But I said, if I was going to lose him, what would, you know, let's sit down and talk, bro. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, he said we're not friends. But that stuff's that's, again, not, I'm not going to get into that right now. Okay? So, And that's about it. So that's another thing to think about. Let's move on. All right, uh, you know, last, I think it was the last episode, we were talking Targaryens. This time we're going to talk lizards to, with a Targaryen, not Khaleesi. I know you probably don't take this podcast seriously, especially since most of the con Khaleesi-related content. Now the, you know, I talked to you about the metric system. That was at the top of the episode, I think. It's a little bit deeper in. And, uh, you know, I know, I, you, well... I just want to pitch you on some stuff. I was thinking about these dragons. You got the one dragon out running around, and you got these other dragons. And I'm always there working, you know, you're my Khaleesi, you're our Khaleesi, you're everybody's Khaleesi. 
So I want to look into uh, Can You Tame Lizards? Because I was thinking this whole dragon stuff. I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it because, you know, I thought dragons in some other worlds were more intelligent. They could take human form. Sometimes they can cast spells. Sometimes they're more intelligent than humans. Your dragons seem more straight lizard-like. And so then I was like, man, you know, poor Khaleesi. She's got to lock these lizards up, these dragons. Poor dragons. They're just animals. They don't know any better. Or maybe they do. I was thinking, could I help you out? Could I, uh, could could I figure out how to help you tame your dragons? And I know there's a movie out there. Haven't seen it. Either one, not because I don't want to, just because I haven't. Which maybe I could have riffed on that, but I looked in. But then I was like, you know, Khaleesi, you you need, you know, just like the metric system. I'm not here to, like, try to be, like, an older man vying for your love. Like those two... Uh, dudes, the old dudes, and you already got your, like, Meteroni or whatever you want to call them, uh, Dario Naharis, and I'm, you know, like I said, Grey Worm, that's cool, bro, if you and Melisandre, otherwise, you know, I, I, not, if you want me to, you know, I'm ready to move in on you, but uh, try and be respectful, but I would try to offer you solutions, like uh, Miles, no good, metric system, good. So where, where are we at? Like, it's like I've come back with a report for you. Where are we at with, can we can we tame these dragons? Can we train lizards? And here's the facts to Khaleesi. I got them in front of me. And just so you know, Khaleesi, these are copyrighted uh, articles. Uh, so I don't want to get sued. So I'm going to be paraphrasing and quoting from these copyrighted articles. I found one on backwaterreptiles.com. How to tame a lizard. And that's copyright at 2011 backwaterreptiles.com. Thank you for uh, putting this resource out there because it's great. Uh, this is the best play, best thing I could find on the internet about taming lizards. Uh, the lizard taming conundrum. Lizards are undomesticated. Essentially, it means they're wild animals, regardless of whether they're captive bred or not. To complicate things, certain lizards uh, have a greater proclivity towards becoming tame while others are skittish and aggressive. Bottom line on taming reptiles. Sorry to tell you this, Khaleesi, but uh, forget everything you've ever heard about taming a lizard. This means ignoring well-meaning reptile-infused enthusiasts who suggest handling your lizard regularly will lead to a tame reptile, which is terrible advice. Leave your assumptions at the door, the catacomb door in this case, and continue reading. Below will... Go against your natural tendencies, but trust this guy. Force handling your lizard is detrimental. It can make it impossible. It creates tremendous fear within your lizard and display this by biting, writhing, defecating, remaining motionless, which some hobbyists think incorrectly is tame, when the lizard just scared. The best method for taming a lizard to give it some space, which you seem to be doing, my dear Khaleesi. Uh, when you first bring the lizard home, not so a little bit late, place it in a cage and leave it alone for a couple of days. Resist the urge to interact with it. Over the ensuing weeks, your goal is to use food, which you've done to create a bond between you and the lizard. This does not happen overnight, so be patient. Lizard taming method. Begin the reward process by placing food items 
in the cage, see what the lizard does, sees you're non-aggressive, continues for a few weeks. Now, you've already kind of done this. This says use the food, you know, to create a bond. But that's about it. You can get it to let you feed it, and it'll look forward to you. Perhaps the biggest factor, just in case any anyone else out there other than you, Khaleesi, is listening, is its history. This is primarily wild-caught specimens have been put under irreversible stress due to capture in a horrendous transportation process across the world. They have so many obstacles to overcome just to survive that taming them is the absolute list, last thing on the list of priorities. Start with captive-bred animals that makes the timing pro- taming process easier so they have a clean history. If you can start with hatchlings as you did, wise Khaleesi, it's a great idea. The species makes a difference. Now, this is where a problem with the dragons comes in. While some will argue the contrary, behead those fools. Uh, there are certain lizards that seem to be nasty right out of the egg. Nile monitors, for example. Maybe Drogon was a Nile monitor-related dragon. Others, like the Sudan-plated lizard, practically want to be tamed. Some... Uh, slizzers are easier to tame, but based on this guy's experience, bearded dragons, savannah monitors, roughneck monitors, horned lizards, Egyptian something, Sudan-plated lizards, and blue-tongued skinks. Some of the more difficult are Nile monitors, crocodile monitors, Cuban night anoles, Cuban rockagana, iguanas, the toke get geckos, truth be told. He's heard a lot of bad stories about tokes and niles. This guy uh, has uh, found a mild coordinate co- correlation between the size of the lizard and the amount of work it takes to tame it. While some could argue to the contrary, my anecdotal experience tells another story. Small lizards are more skittish. So that's good news about the dragons. Now, you know, to give you the other side of the coin, Khaleesi, I looked into another article. This one's by uh, Valerie Hakey, H-A-E-C-K-Y, over at uh, A-N-A-P-S-I-D dot org. Another copyright article from 1995. This is, it talks a lot about taming reptiles. But uh, some questions, you know, that uh, I thought you might like in here. Do reptiles like to be petted? Some do, some don't. She knows several boas who love to be petted even on their heads and develop a taste for it. That is key. Many reptiles don't like to be petted. But once they get used to it, they start to like it. This is like a Wikipedia article a little bit. Many snakes like to walk. This is, Khaleesi, don't take this person's advice, even though it's copyrighted. Many snakes like to cuddle in warm, dark places like t-shirts. If the idea of if your idea of petting an animal is curled up on your stomach inside your shirt while you're reading a book, then a snake's a good pet for you. No, it's not, Khaleesi. Turtles and tortoises are not cuddly, but many like their bellies scratched. I had a chance to pet a young Galapagos tortoise, she says. They went off to Never Never Land when she scratched their jaws. How do you know if an animal likes to be petted? If it doesn't run away. Uh, does not avoid your touch, goes to sleep in your arms, stays around. How smart are snakes? This is the next question. Very stupid, according to this article. The animals they eat are smarter. Snakes, you're not going to like that. I did not write that. How smart are tortoises and turtles? Smarter than snakes. 
They can learn things, routines, given enough time. How smart are lizards? Depends, she says. Enoles and geckos are not smart at all. Some iguanas are quite intelligent. Some monitors very smart, almost as smart as a parakeet. Do reptiles recognize individuals? We know dragons recognize you, Khaleesi. What do you give if you get bit? Does it hurt? This, depending on the size of the teeth in the animal, will hurt, bleed, and be a mess. All of us have this. This is the terrible advice. I'm sorry, Vicky. Uh, it comes with a hobby: disinfect the wound, get stitches as necessary. Do not make a big deal out of it, especially not to your doctor. Do not follow this advice if you're listening, especially Khaleesi. Or do not, or do you want registration for bidding your pet because it bit one person? Do not blame anyone else when you get bitten, even if it's someone else's animal. If you get bit, it is your fault and nobody's fault or nobody's fault. Never sue a store if their pets bite you. Oh, sometimes a snake tooth will be lost when it bites. Pull it out like a thing. Um, most turtle bites are pinches and will not draw blood. Yeah, right. You ever seen a snapping turtle? My reptile's skittish. How do I patient? How do I tame it with patience? She says. How do I know if an animal likes me? Uh, if you're asking that question, you should be in jail. How do I potty train my reptile? Uh, by checking into a mental hospital. Should I buy a nippy or shy animal if I want to tame one? No. Can snakes learn to do tricks? No. Yes, maybe. Can turtles learn to do tricks? Yes. Can lizards learn to do tricks? Not really. Uh, can I make my animals stay in the yard? No. Reptiles come and go as they please. <laughs> can I put my reptile on a leash and go for a walk with it? Some lizards can. I've heard of iguanas and savannah monitors being able to do this. Could use a cat or rabbit harness. Turtles and tortoises should never have their shells perforated in order to tie them to a leash. Yeah, don't do that. So, which reptiles tame easily? This is uh, her preferences. Corn snakes, rat snakes, king snakes, milk snakes, boa constrictors, red-eared sliders, snapping turtles, iguanas. Not snapping turtles, please. Ball pythons, monitors... Burmese pythons, but they get big and can harm a person. <laughs> Box turtles, reptiles stay shy, racers, vine snakes, small lizards, python, de Albert pythons, Tokay geckos, basilisks, aren't basilisks like they can turn you to stone? Which reptiles are aggressive? Green tree pythons, emerald tree boas, they have big teeth, anacondas, especially green ones. Nile monitor, reticulated pythons can be bad-tempered, which reptiles are not recommended. Gila monsters, rattlesnakes, <laughs> venomous snakes, crocodiles and alligators, Komodo dragons, and horned toads. Okay, so Khaleesi. Uh, I'm going to, believe it or not, Khaleesi, I think I have another solution for these dragons, but I'm going to save it for... Uh, the prayers, because I think we're going to need some intervention from the gods. So I'll talk to you in a little bit, honey. Uh, I'm sorry. I'll talk to you in a little bit, sweet Khaleesi. So now we're going to be talking about Ray Harryhausen. And, I, you know, I, I, I would go on the assumption that everyone knows who Ray Harryhausen is, but you might not. 
And but you might have heard of his name before. One of the reasons is that uh, Sully and Mike. I think Mike is the one uh, played by Billy Crystal in the first Monsters Inc. He's having dinner in Harryhausen's restaurant with that octopus girl. He's dating, and if you go on the ride in Disneyland, uh, there's a scene in Harryhausen's restaurant. It's a little nod to Ray Harryhausen, who is, and I've never heard him said. There's a friggin' plane going. It must be Ray Harryhausen hater flying over right now. But Ray Harryhausen is one of the geniuses of visual effects, special effects, and a lot that we owe some of the wonderful things to our filmmaking today. And I don't want to put words in any Game of Thrones creator's mouths, but it felt like the scene with uh, Team Bran, as I like to call them, starting on this episode and probably ending because not all his team is going to be <laughs> spoiler alert. Uh, but the, with the skeletons uh, rising out of the thing, now, I don't know how they made those skeletons because I'm, again, I'm not, you know, I, I walk into these traps that I set for myself. I should know, I should know who directed it. And I apologize to all the parties involved with a bow, deep bow. My head just touched the, well, the, I'm not going to lie. Uh, my forehead should have touched the floor. But anyway, so Ray Harryhausen, I don't want to get off the subject. Let me give you Clash of the Titans. Not the, I think there was a, was that called Clash of the Titans? There was a mo- Titans-related movie that came out in the last couple of years, but he's a Clash of the Titans with uh, the dude from L.A. Law. And Lawrence of Olivier, Lawrence of Olivier, <laughs> Lawrence Olivier may have been in that movie too. But, uh, that was a movie that, to me, I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Uh, probably is, uh, I don't know how well it stands up, but that was his last movie that he made. Uh, I'm butchering this. I'm sorry, Mr. Harryhausen. I'll just read through some of the, his Clash of the Titans, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, The Golden Vision of Sim- Sinbad, The Valley of Gawanji, One Million Years B.C., First Men on the Moon, Jason and the Argonauts, Mysterious Island, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, 20 million miles to Earth, the animal world that came from beneath the sea. And he cut his teeth on Mighty Joe Young, which which I think has some, maybe some irony, I don't know. that I don't, And I don't even know anything about I'm just talking out my rear end here. It's like Mighty Joe Young, was that a King Kong ripoff or not? But uh, So Ray Harryhausen, what, what, what are you talking about? Let me... Let me go to my notes, okay? First thing up is, he, yeah. So Ray Harryhausen was born in L.A. He's the son of Martha and Frederick. German descent, their original family name was Herrenhausen. Uh, he saw King Kong many times when it came out. He spent his early years, he, he, this was a guy tinkering right away. Someone destined to unlock the secrets of visual effects because he was experimenting and trying. Uh, so he's screwing around with the stuff. Stop motion animation. That's probably what I should have introduced him for, but of course, I was, you know, me. Um, he really looked up to this guy, Willis O'Brien, who did King Kong, and uh, he met O'Brien. O'Brien critiqued Harryhausen's models and told him to take some classes in graphic arts and sculpture to hone, hone his skills. Harryhausen became friends with Ray Bradbury. And they were in some science fiction league formed by 
Forrest J. Ackerman. No relation to me, but whatever. Harryhausen uh, secured his first commercial job on George Pal's Puppetoons shorts and did a demo reel of fighting dinosaurs for a project called Evolution of the World, which was never completed. World War WW2, he was served in the Army's division under Colonel Frank Capra. He was a loader, capper boy, gopher, and later camera assistant, doing uh, short films of uh, about military equipment. He also worked with Dmitry Timokin and Ted Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss. Following the war, he salvaged some surplus film, which he made a short called T... Uh, some fairy tale shorts. He always wanted to make a War of the Worlds based on H.G. Wells, but I don't think he ever got there. 47. Harry Housen was hired as assistant animator on Mighty Joe Young by O'Brien, who ended up winning the uh, Academy Award for Special Effects. In the 50s, uh, Harry Housen did his first film where he was fully in charge of effects The Beast from 20,000 Phantoms. Uh, supporting, according to this, it became a, a hit for Warner Brothers. So as Beast of uh, 20,000 Phantoms, he first used a tick technique that split the background and foreground of a pre-shot live-action footage into two separate images in which he would model, animate the models. I'm going to read about this later. I think it's called Dynamation. Confuses me, but it was his uh, breakthrough. In um, most Harryhausen films, model... Animated characters interact with humans. And this is, you know, this is where we get into the cool stuff. Uh, a few years later, Harryhausen started working at Color 7 Voyage of Sinbad, where it used Dynamation. Harryhausen was always involved in, like, the pre-production concept of the film, script development, art direction. So he's had his hand in everything. He was also... Uh, Harryhausen worked at Columbia Pictures with Charles Schneer to make 20 million miles to Earth in 57, about a spaceship returning from Venus. Some uh, crazy stuff happens with an onboard egg. And creatures, you know, that kind of stuff, that's what we love. Uh, him and Schneer went to uh, color. Harryhausen... Um, Oh, this is back up. Just so fuck that. Uh, after a couple more movies, Gulliver and Mysterious Island, they were technical and artistic successes. The next film is considered by film historians and fans as Harryhausen's masterwork, Jason and the Argonauts. It had uh, extended fights between actors and skeletons, which you've probably seen before. I'll try to find out where we can stream this movie from Netflix or Amazon Prime and put it in the show notes. Harryhausen then made Men on the Moon uh, based on a novel by H.G. Wells. Then with the changes in the culture in the 60s, Harryhausen's uh, more... Harryhausen's special effects and his love of the old kind of Got old. He did have a, a hit with One Million Years B.C., though, in 66, which made him a lot... Uh, make another dinosaur movie called... Uh, make another dinosaur movie called The Valley of Gwangi, which uh, 
Doesn't look like it was ever completed. It was a parallel Kong story with cowboys and an allosaurus. Uh, so, cool. In the 60s, 70, in the 70s through the 90s, they had some year, lean years, but then they revived their Sinbad character, resulting in the golden voyage of Sinbad, where there was sword fighting with a six-armed goddess, Kali. And that was followed up by uh, Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger, which was tongue-in-cheek. I'd like to see that tongue-in-cheek approach. Both films were box office successes. Then they finally, uh, Schneer and Harryhausen, uh, got a big budget from MGM. And this is when they got Laurence Olivier hired, and they made Clash of the Titans. A little controversy because Harryhausen lived in London. He never got an Oscar for special effects. But, you know, he's well-known. He's beloved by me, even though I'm just not, I don't feel like I'm living up to it, complimenting him. This Dynamation stuff, uh, that's, this is really, uh, this could be really boring if you're you know, still fake. Um, for many years, this is, uh, I'll have to print where the, I don't have where, this is from uh, Ray Harryhausen's website, Ray Harryhausen's website. For many years, Ray had an idea that would split the live action, enabling a model to be inserted directly into it and appear to act, interact with the actors. As far back from 3839, he was experimenting for evolution of the world. And he realized if an era area is matted out, why couldn't two areas be matted out to create what is known as a split screen? Don't know what that means. First animation feature. Uh, they inserted models in both King Kong and Mighty Joe Young by means of a sandwich of glass paintings which allowed a three-dimensional effect for animation, but as Ray knew, because of his work on Mighty Joe Young, this was time-consuming and too expensive. When he submitted his budget for special effects for the Beast between from 20,000 Phantoms, he had to find a more practical way, mother of all invention. So he found a more practical way uh, of interacting with the models or models with the live action. So he did some experiments, and he came up with this where... His split-screen model worked. The technique, the process was simple but effective. He projected a live-action image, live image onto a rear screen in front of which he placed an animation table with the model. He would then place a glass sheet in front of both. When the live-action plate had been shot, Ray would establish where he wanted to make his mat line so looking through the camera finder, he'd reestablish that line with a wax pencil on the end of a stick, follow that line by drawing it on the glass. This will be all in the show notes. When he's satisfied that that line was accurate, he would paint it out with black matte paint. The lower section below the line, he would then photograph the animation. Yeah, don't, uh, this is again where my brain, these are concepts my brain has trouble processing, and this is not a knock on myself. You know, not everybody's, Processes things the same way. I just, maybe I'm a visual learner. I don't know. It was for the seventh voyage of Sinbad that uh, they came up with a name for Dynamation. Uh, I think, who, who was it? His partner, I think, was sitting in his Buick and he noticed the word Dynaflow on the dashboard. He realized Dyna was perfect for Ray's style of animation. I didn't even realize that Ray Perkins and Ray. 
Harry Housen have the same first name? Or did I the whole time, Ray Harryhausen? <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, so that became a you know more marketing term for Ray's kind of uh, thing. If you want to find out more about Dynamation, you can check out Ray's books, An Animated Life, The Art of Ray Harryhausen, A Century of Model Animation, and Ray Harryhausen's Fantasy Scrapbook. You know, go ahead and support Ray. Harryhausen. In summary, his most memorable works include the animation on Mighty Joe Young with Willis O'Brien, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad in 1958, Jason the Argonauts in 63, and Clash of the Titans, after which he retired. And then there was one more article I saw in the last couple of weeks that I thought was interesting related to Ray Harryhausen. Somehow it's like how... Uh, and it's called uh, How 3D Printing is Making for Better Movie Monsters. And it's an interview between, uh, I think, Gizmodo and uh, this company called Luma, who I think is in L.A. and Australia, and how they're using 3D models, like 3D printed models, to help them animate stuff on computers. Cool stuff. So just cool little interview. If you're awake and, you know, you can't stop thinking about modeling stuff, uh, I'll put that in there for you. All right, thanks. And let's uh, got one more thing to talk about, so let's go on to that, okay? Okay, time, time for prayers. Uh, sweet crone, greatest of all, oh, 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 gods, I'm uh, directing my prayer to you. Smith, Miller, uh, uh, Jester, Barky, if I'm forgetting somebody, Smith, Miller, Barky, I don't know, it's been a little while since I've prayed to you guys, I know, blaspheming and stuff, and, um, Chester, I know you're the new god up there, and I, I, I should probably should have kept a better eye on you, but it doesn't seem like, it seems like the world's holding together. What's up? Um, I just want to give you guys a heads up on me. Um, I don't want to tell you guys what I know or don't know, but um, I'm gonna do a little. Con I'm gonna conference Khaleesi, the Khaleesi into this prayer, because we got a little, and, and you might be, you know. You're God, so you probably already know this, but there's other people that might be like, what are you talking about? You know, I got the Bruce Bolton fantasy fiction time machine, so I'm going to do some stuff. Like, Khaleesi's going to hear this. Probably not like, you know, parallel universe type stuff. You guys are gods. Everybody else doesn't need to understand it. So, Khaleesi, you're in, you're in on this, um, on some part of this, you know, Transverse, transverse stuff we got going. And I just want to talk to you guys. Um, Khaleesi, I got a few more things to say. Maiden, uh, if you're listening in, don't worry about it. Uh, we're still on. Uh, Jester, I hope you stayed away. Khaleesi, I want you to meet the Jester. You guys might get along pretty good. Khaleesi, no offense to that dude you're hanging out with, but he's no uh, Oberon, so... You know, maybe you guys could 
I don't know. You've already had some stuff. You know, I don't know if you need any. Um, but, well, let's not talk about your womb and housing any half gods or dragon gods or whatever. That's not important right now. What is important is your dragons and you're the breaker of chains. And I was thinking gods, you know, I was totally on the mission of, uh, you know, righteousness and converting people to you guys. Miller, Smith, I'm not leaving you guys out of this. I'm going to need your help big time. Um, So, and Crone, of course, Crone, sweet, sweet Crone. You're the first god I pray to. And the last, as long as you're... And, Crone, we could talk about the whole, you know, Crone, I want to know what you want in case uh, godship comes up. Uh, I don't know how all that works, but we should talk about that at some other time. So, anyway, you know I'm being around the bush here. I got a plan. For, I, I came up with a plan. Now, gods, we, you know, I think the Khaleesi's pretty great, Okay. And I know you guys are up there, and you got your the other gods that think they're hot stuff to deal with, and they're probably, you know, put their eggs in the Lannister's basket or whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to keep some stuff going to entertain you gods. But also, I think um, Miller Smith, Crone, Barky, if we can, um, you know, we'll get a unified front with Bran and them and the, the, those people that are into you because they seem pretty cool, different. You have, like, residents of the city of Austin, keep Austin weird, the children and that kind of stuff. You know, we're in, we'll, we'll work with them, but this is about... Okay, so get to the point. Khaleesi's got uh, probably stuff to do. So I don't know if you guys heard about this Magnemite who's passed on. Uh, he was a king of the giants. He was supposedly, he was like a wicked old and really loved by these giants. And so we got a leadership vacuum there. That's one. We also have a dead giant, Mag the Mighty. And when I was thinking about Mag the Mighty originally, I was thinking about Quinn the Eskimo. Because who wouldn't, you know, that's an easy thing. And I was trying to be like, you know, I was going to try to sing a song and I was looking at the history of Quinn the Eskimo, and but then it's like ends up it's a nonsensical song. But I don't, and I don't know if you guys know, but it's like you come on, come out, do 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 do. You not seen nothing like Mag the Mighty Friends. See, kind of rolls off the tongue. So I was thinking about Mag the Mighty, and I was still, and even when I sat down this podcast episode, that was gonna be my first thing, and then I was like, I don't have anything. Because I just don't want to rework the lyrics of Quinn the Eskimo. Because I do that a lot. And I want to become a one-trick pony. Because I'm trying to praise you guys in the utmost and most honorable ways. Because Almighty Crone and Miss Smith Miller, Parky, Jester. Any other gods I might have forgot about that I'm praising. That aren't jerks. Yeah, I'm trying to praise you with utmost, uh, you know... Can't, whatever stuff, you know, I'm totally like uh, on my knees here in in, in a sense, a non-literal sense. So, yeah, I've got this plan. So Magnemite, we got this dead Magnemite. I hope you guys, he's cold, so that's a good pry. I'm no meister, maester, whatever, but that's, I see what's happened with the mountain, Magnemite. 
I think you guys are God, so I need, I need some God power is what I'm saying. And then on the other side of things, we've lost the hound. Unfortunately, the hound is a testy dude. And we never, you know, I thought he'd be a cool guy to hang out with, but, you know, also a handful. So I didn't talk to him like I did to praise some almighty jester God uh, about what he was going to do. So he's down there in some pit. He might already be gone or he's about to expire. So we got Magna Mighty. We got the Hound. And then we got these dragons, Khaleesi. That's where I'm bringing you in. And, you know, went over the lizard training stuff. Didn't look good. But I was thinking about this lizard. It's like, you can't tame a lizard, but could you dominate a lizard? And if you're going to dominate it, you're going to get hurt. So I'm not going to. So I don't want to put that on you, Khaleesi. I don't want you. We can't have you getting hurt. You need your soldiers for soldiering and stuff. Obviously, I, I don't have enough calluses to just handle dragons straight up. So that's what I'm thinking, gods. And, you know, this is a conference call. It's going to take everybody's work. But if you guys are going to be the top gods, which I believe you are already, but if we're going to show, show up all these other gods that think they're so great, we're going to need to do some stuff. And this is, you know, the goats are my original plan that did not work out. And, the, you know, the being a prophet for you guys, I just didn't follow through on that. I'm sorry. But this was because this other idea was somewhere deep inside me. So here's what we do. We're going to suit. And believe me, I got some stuff in the... I'm going to take some of the magical stuff out of the fantasy fiction time machine. So I'm going to do my part other than just thinking outside the box. Uh, is we're going to combine. We're going to take the hound. And we're going to put him inside Magnum Mighty, okay? We're going to revive Magnum Mighty. But um, we're also going to make him subservient to me. It's going to be like Magnum Mighty and the Hound are combined. Now, the Hound's very, uh, we're going we're gonna to make it some, I'll talk to him. Believe me, I can get a one-on-one and let him know. He's, he was loyal to Joff until he wasn't anymore. But he's going to be loyal to me, okay? He, he sticks around for the most part. He's, so I, I, I think I can get that over and I might need you to, you know, just stand over my shoulder or something and laugh. You know, Hound likes to laugh. He doesn't act like he does, but he does. He finds a lot of things humorous. But so we're going to get the Mag the Mighty Hound. And then I figure well, once I'm, you know, in charge of that, we'll call up the other giants. We'll get them in. Now, the giants are big enough to handle these dragons. And uh, maybe not, uh, not, don't worry, I don't want any dragons riding, Khaleesi, don't, it won't be, but the the giants will be able to, uh, and what, and I mean, now, I, I know this is going to be a little bit controversial, but, you know, some, the giants have some thick skin, so I'm thinking we might lose a couple giants, but um, it'll be for the, for the, for the greater good of the gods and the Khaleesi, but, before, you know, we can get them to, like, Take your dragons, no hurting, Khaleesi, don't worry, but gently guiding them and, like, not manhandling them, but, you know, being, like, directing them and unleashing them. So, like, say the dragon, right, we're going to throw him towards some troops or guide him into a castle. If he shoots some fire backwards, the, the giants are better capable of handling that. And, like, just 
And the other thing is, and I don't know if this is what you already got planned, Khaleesi, is the threat of giants might be enough. And, but then, you know, like the Tywin, if whoever, if anybody's as smart as him, even Stannis and the Red Woman, they might say, well, show us these giants. You roll in with Hound the Mag the Mighty. Mag the Mighty. I got to think of a better name for him, but. Clegg, hey, Mag, Mag, Sandor the Mighty Mag. Yeah, it doesn't go with the song, but with a giant couple um, dragons on chains flapping around, to, that's it. They're going to surrender. And even these others, I don't know, they're undead and stuff, but that probably scare them too, or not the others, whatever they're called. The And then once we get, and then Barky, you know, then we'll meet up this raven dude, or one or three-eyed guy, and Bran, and the children from freaking Thund- Thunderdome kids. And we'll make it like Tina Turner while she in the movie. I guess I haven't seen the movie in a while, but we we won't need another hero like Tina Turner sings. We won't need to know the way home because you gods will be the heroes now. And we'll have like sigils. Like if I'm going to be, and again, with Khaleesi, what about, what about making some sigils for the Smith and Miller crone? I mean, think about that. To be a very sensible stuff and then we got these we got this whole um you know we can uh just like those other religions like to kind of dominate and and co-opt other religions we can do it over here in these marine and whatever and you know chrome could be uh you know we could get that whatever that thing is on the on the top of the pyramids and make that's the chrome now you know We'll, we'll get these people on board but that's it so um I'm going to try to delegate. I know, Crone, you, you should know where everybody is, Mag the Mighty and the Hound. Oberyn, I think, like, your power of um, the laughter is the power of life, and that's not a joke. So I think if you can stir something, I don't know if giants laugh. They must on some level. But, you know, stir them up, you know, re- revitalize them. And then... um Miller, I want you to grind up the hound's um, spiritual side, not his physical. Grind that up and uh, and then um, give it over to the smith. Smith, I want you to melt that down in your magical forge. We'll pour it right in Mag the Mighty's ear. And, you know, liquid, uh, liquid hound, spirit of the hound liquid. And we'll get him in there. Khaleesi, I know you're, you know, you know, and again, Khaleesi, you don't got to, I'm not here, I'm not doing this to impress you, believe me. Uh, I was hanging with goats, I knew you wouldn't be impressed by that, but it's because I, I'm on, I'm, I'm like, I like your style. I mean, I'm attracted to you, believe me, but I think you're out of my league, I'm realistic about that. And I, Melisandre might be out of my league, whatever, it's not important. Um, or maybe, oh no, wait, the maiden, maybe I am in love with you, Khaleesi, maiden. Um, yeah, maybe that's why I'm doing all this, Maiden, if you're listening. I, I guess that is why I'm doing all this, because I'm in love with the Khaleesi. Because her beauty is, I'm not going to blaspheme you, Maiden. She's not, as, but, yeah, uh, without blaspheming you, Maiden, you know, Khaleesi's pretty darn hot, and, whoa, boy, I can't uh, stop and Melisandre. And I think I just got to, you know, move on from you, Maiden. Um Anyway, so that's what I'm thinking. Uh, I know you guys have been on my side. Those boots, again, if I'm going to be marching at the head of anything, that's like a small request, but that's 
I'm not doing any more requests for me. Like that's been the tradition for now and forever is I'm, I'm your uh, soldier here on cruising around the Roost Bowl and Fantasy Fiction Time Machine. Praise the names of the Crone. Praise the name of Miller and the Smith and the Jester and Barky. Uh, all, all God's old and new, but God's that are great. And the greatest, if you might, I mean, if you don't mind me saying, the greatest and the best, simply the best. We don't need another hero because beyond the Thunderdome is where you guys are going to be ruling. Thunderdome is a movie. Movies are a thing. Um, oh, you know, cave paintings are kind of like movies. And pretty sure there's a cave painting somewhere in Westeros. So, yeah, that might be confusing. Uh, but like I said, I think I was going to tell, like, uh, oh, wait, it was the Romans. I think I have, is Aristotle still trying to kill me? Gods, do you know that? It's not important. And I haven't not caught Cat Stevens yet, but don't worry about that either. So that's it, gods. Um, so you guys got work to do. To you know, your names aren't going to praise themselves. That's what it comes down to. So, um, Crone, you send the Miller out. Miller, you grind up that spirit of the hound. I don't know if you can do that, like, uh, you know, as a joke, but through the cloud or through the clouds, you might be able to, and, uh, you know, remotely, or if you got to go there in some sort of form. Jester, you keep an you know, you stir up the spirits of these creatures. And then I'll deal with the hound. Um, I think, I think I can get him. You know, I'm gonna tell him he owes me. And uh, plus, I'm gonna get his father. I didn't even like I've got. I didn't even tell him about that. I mean, that's not even like I was trying to do that anyway before I came up with this plan. And so, yeah, wreaking vengeance. He he doesn't seem like a vengeful guy actually. Hound really deals in like the present. So maybe I'll just keep his eyes on the prize, the current prize, which is like using the giants and his newfound giant prop. And then it'll be bigger than the mountain too. Hmm. Yeah, I got plenty of pitch the hound on, so nope, not a problem. That's about it. Um, praise all and all your glories. You guys are the best, as I said. And I'm just honored to be uh, your humble servant here um, doing your bidding. And making sure you're the top dogs because you are. And I don't know if you heard the stuff about Ray Harryhausen, but no, no Titans could be clashing with you. Someday they'll be making movies about you, both in fan fiction, actually, and you know, with all these different parallel stuff. You guys will be up there, you know, again the glory in the glory days, as uh, Bruce Springsteen said, aren't passing you by; they're coming soon and the present we're, we're doing so that's it uh yeah uh good night gods well not good night because you got work to do but i'll be on i'm on the job and you know that's it I'm, I'm proving myself worthy of those boots again just in case you think about that stuff and um that's it i will see you uh who i don't think about um well khaleesi i'll be in touch with you how about that um and, yeah, the rest of you, you know, get on it. Good work, though. And let's, uh, you know, power. Uh, yeah, yay, gods. Great. Thanks. Good night.